My name is Sherry and I am a grateful recovering member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon and Alateen. Hi, Sherry. And um, I'm originally from New Jersey, so I should have stood up. <laughs> and I'm not her ex-husband, so. <laughs> I want to thank you all for inviting me here to Maryland. Um, I'm trying to decide. I was getting dressed tonight, and I'm trying to think, am I in the south or the north? Yes. <laughs> it is a border state, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, uh, and the reason I say that is that I was born in New Jersey, and my dad was in the Army, so we lived all over, but mostly it was in the South. And then 25 years ago, I moved to Virginia. I was going to be there for two years and then go home, and somehow that just didn't quite happen, and I'm still there. But my mother-in-law used to say to me, she would say, Sherry, you have married a Virginian, and you have given birth to a Virginian, but she never, ever will be a Virginian. <laughs> The last time I spoke was in Savannah, Georgia, and um, one of the things I do to sort of prepare myself before I speak, because I am not like Mark today, I'm not a circuit speaker, but um, before, and I, I speak infrequently, but every now and then, um, I always listen to my last talk so I can see how I did, and I, and I remember they said, now remember, this is Georgia, speak slowly, and I swear to you, I spoke like a bat out of hell, I thought they didn't get a thing I said. So I'm hoping tonight, if I revert to my New Jersey roots, you'll be able to keep up. <laughs> I'm so thrilled to be here. It's absolutely a beautiful, beautiful setting. And I think next year I just may come back to enjoy the setting and to, to just kind of relax instead of having to feel right now like I might be sick. But, um, <laughs> and I never looked ahead. I should make a habit of looking to see where I'm going. And I didn't until yesterday. I was on the, the web and I looked up the Rocky Gap Resort and Spa, and I realized that y'all had golf here. And my husband is an avid golfer, and I felt really guilty <laughs> because I didn't ask him to come along. And um, I just, you know, I, we can only follow each other but so much, and so I just didn't think about it. And then I felt really, really bad because he could have golfed. But today I fessed up and I said, you know what, Doug, they have golf here, but it's raining. <laughs> so I, you know, absolved my guilt instantly. And, uh, and he's going to a Redskins game tomorrow, so he wouldn't have wanted to come anyway. He'd much rather be in, in D.C. at the game. So um, so be it. He's missing the golf in the rain. Um, I want to thank Mark, who spoke this afternoon. Um, I thought he was marvelous. I just, he was a really great speaker. I like speakers that speak from the heart. I like speakers that are not that you feel are genuine, that you feel aren't giving the same talk over and over and over. Um, I never know what I'm going to say. Uh, I was telling them today at lunch that there for a while I was speaking quite a bit. When you become a delegate, they think you speak well. I know delegates that can barely get a sentence out, so I don't know what they, that's all about, but they think you can, so you get invited a lot. And it, and it turned out there was a time where I was speaking so daggone much that I could just sort of, you know, okay, insert up laughter here, up here, we're going to do the, and, and and one day I was speaking at a picnic, and I thought, I am so bored with myself. I can't stand it. And then I didn't speak anymore for a while, so God took that right out of my heart. So uh, it's been a while, and I'm, I'm really glad that this one's going to be full of flaws, but as genuine as they come, it, re it really will be. Um, I come to you uh, as a miracle of the program of Al-Anon. Um, I can be 
just as good an Al-Anon as anybody, and I can be as unrecovered as anybody on any given day. And I've been in the program a couple of years, 27 of them. <laughs> um, and, and yet, it's a program that on a daily basis, I have, to, I have to work like it's the very first day of my program. Otherwise, I get very complacent. And, and I think the longer you're in Al-Anon, the harder it is to, to continue in a program of recovery because you can get very complacent and things seem to be going pretty good and then all of a sudden you realize they're not going so good and you think, oh, that's right, there's those meetings I'm supposed to be attending and, <laughs> and, it, and it can be a little, little hard. So I think I'm one of the first speakers you've probably ever had that needs to be here maybe more than you do. Um, I really needed this weekend. I needed it for, for the recovery. I needed it for the the people that I have met so far, and, and Tim and Kristen are adorable. I just love them. I want to take them home with me. They're so <laughs> cute. And, and your sister, Elisa, correct, right? She's wonderful, the sister I mean, it's just everybody's so nice here, and I'm just so, so happy that they've shared their time with me today. They've put up with me for a full day. Um, my uh, anniversary date is Easter Sunday, 1980, and the reason I remember that is it's a resurrection day for for, for the religious reason, but it was my resurrection day. It was, keep going. <laughs> Pay no attention to the woman pushing the mic down. <laughs> my husband prays to not be able to hear me. You know that? He prays for that. <laughs> and there used to be an old AA speaker, and he used to talk about recovery was like a new pair of glasses. And for me, that's what Al-Anon has been. It has been a new pair of glasses for me. It has enabled me to see my life as it truly is, not as I felt it was. And if you had asked me before the program of Al-Anon what my life was like, what my childhood and my upbringing was like, I would have told you it was full of misery and uncertainty and fear. But once I came into the doors of Al-Anon and I began to take a look at my life through the program of Al-Anon, through those glasses, I began to see that my life was really not that bad. It just had some really unpleasant moments. When my parents were talking about getting married, my mother expressed to her best friend's mother a concern about my father's drinking. And her best friend's mother said to her, Oh, Jeannie, all Eddie really needs is a loving family and a good wife. Why are you laughing? <laughs> and he won't drink anymore. And if you ever are in a situation where you hear that, that is a big white flag and you should run. <laughs> run quickly. And my mother took on the challenge, and, and my parents were married, and it's a good thing they did because seven months after my parents were married, my mother gave birth to a very large seven-pound preemie, and that was me. <laughs> and they took one look at me and said, whoa, this one's more than enough, and I am an only child. I also have an only child. It's sort of a family legacy. So... And, and I, have great, I had great parents. I really did. My father, I have to explain my parents to you so you'll understand from where I come from and how I got here. Um, my father was a sergeant in the Army. He was six foot one, blue eyes, handsome, very, very sort of regularly handsome, kind of a Clint Eastwood kind of handsome man, and absolutely dashing and romantic. And I adored this man. And everything in my life that I appreciate this day, my father gave to me. He, uh, he used to be a singer, and he loved music, and I still sing occasionally, and I love music. And he liked the theater, and he would take me to the theater with my mom and I. And he, he loved to read, and we would, um, we would read books together as I got older. And he loved history, which came in handy because he loved the Civil War. 
And when I moved to Virginia, it was a good thing I knew where the heck I was going because, you know, that is Virginia. We did invent history in the state of Virginia, and <laughs> the war's still going on. I saw, and the South is winning, by the way. Um, <laughs> And coming up here last night, I saw Antietam, and my instinct was, oh, turn. But it was dark, and it was raining, and I didn't figure they'd be open. But that's a place I haven't gotten to. And, and um, I, I, the Virginians would never believe there was a battle here in Maryland. That just wouldn't have occurred to them. But anyway, he loved history, and so I love history. And so all the things that I still love and enjoy in my life, music and uh, the performing arts and, and history, they were all gifts of my dad. Now, my mother, on the other hand, she was boring. She was very, very steady as she goes. She worked very hard. She was a principled, moral person. And, and I just thought she was boring. And she worked for 40 years as a telephone operator. And um, towards the end of her career, she hated her job. And I just could not understand how anyone could go to work and hate their job the way she did. And what I came to realize with those new pair of glasses was, my mother was the one that put food on the table and paid the bills because my, my handsome, dashing daddy, was, was he drank all the money away, always. And so what I didn't realize was my mother was who we survived on. And she did what she needed to do to take care of her family. And now I've learned to admire her for that. But until Al-Anon, I remember saying, I will never be like my mom. I don't want to work at a job I hate. I'm going to do something exciting and fun, and I'm going to love it. I'm not going to be like her. So. We, we had this wonderful family. We were moving all around um, with the Army, and I loved Army life. It suits me fine. Um, I liked meeting new people. I liked going to different places. Um, I thought everybody lived in a place that began with the word fort. Um, <laughs> and life was good until I was six years old. And that seems like a long time ago to me, but I can still, that was 32 years ago, no, 42, 42 years ago. Whoops, bad math there. And the reason that stands out so well was when I was six years old, my father came home drunk. And I remember that night just like it was yesterday. I, can, I mean, I closed my eyes and I'm sitting at that kitchen table. And I remember sitting there and mom was, was either making dinner or she was at the sink. And my dad came in and I have no idea how I knew it at that age, but I knew he was drunk. And I remember saying to my mom, and I wonder where our six-year-old got this, I said to her, is daddy drunk? And she said, oh no, daddy's just not feeling well. And all he needs to do is, is go to bed and he'll feel better in the morning. And I've heard people stand up and say, my kids were too young to remember me drinking or my kids were too young to remember my behavior when their dad was drinking. And I'm here to tell you that kids always know. I mean, they really know. And today in a couple of workshops I was in, I heard people talking about they loved their parent that drank, but they had no idea what was wrong with the with a sober parent, and that's the way it was in my house. I mean, I instinctively knew my father drank, and I instinctively knew that the problem laid with our old granddad, who lived in a cupboard. And, um, <laughs> but I had no idea what the hell was wrong with my mom. I really didn't. She was just she was just crazy and she was always upset and she cried a lot and she yelled a lot. I had no idea it was wrong with her, but dad was real easy. And I think it's interesting because those people, I remember today when Mark was speaking, he was talking, and we were all laughing. We were laughing about DUIs and falling out of cars. And, you know, normal people don't think that's funny. <laughs> I think it's a scream, and everybody else in the room thought it was pretty funny too. But, you know, those people who don't belong in these rooms just fail to see the humor in that kind of behavior, and that's 
kind of sad because I think it's pretty funny, but um, the old granddad bottle, that's how I judged the, how the day was going to be. That's how people that live in alcoholic homes judge the quality of their day, and that is what is the level of the bottle. You know, if the level stays even in the bottle, it's a good day. But if the level goes down, you can expect things to be, you know, to be going out of control. And I remember to this day one of the sounds I hate the most, and I still cringe, is the sound of an ice cube hitting the glass. Because you just never knew. What was, what was being poured in that glass? Was it iced tea? Was it iced tea with vodka? Was it just straight burp? What was it? You just never knew. I know there's a dance I'm watching the time. Um, and and that's, you know, that's a weird way to live. And um, I'm happy to I have a daughter, and she doesn't live that way. She's clueless as to, to look at it. <laughs> she doesn't go to the closet and look in a bottle and, and figure out what her day is going to be like. That just, she hasn't had that experience. And uh, so that's how it went. And, but, you know, I still, I still loved my parents. And the problem was I knew they loved me, so I couldn't figure out what was wrong in this household. And I remember I was in a church one time, and a well-meaning minister said something like, well, good things happen to those who deserve good things and who are good people, and bad things happen to bad people. And I remember thinking, well, I must be a bad person because I live in a veritable nightmare. I live in hell. Um, and, I, and, and so that's what I thought. I must have something to do with this. you know. And it's also that kind of self-serving, self-centered way we have of thinking. It's like, well... You know, if somebody, even to this day I have this problem, if somebody says, I've got a cold, I'll say, I'm so sorry, is, is there anything I can do? And they'll look at me like, no. <laughs> you know, if you tell me you've had a bad day, I'll tell you how sorry I am. You know, and then I'll try to fix it for you. You know, it's, it, and that's what I did. I kept trying to fix my parents. I was eight years old. One of my jobs was, was that <clears throat> um, when my dad would drink and it would get really bad, we would escape the house. And when we would come back, my mother would send me into the house to check to see where he was and what he was doing. And several times he would be passed out on the floor, and she used to make me go check to see if he was alive. And, you know, I mentioned that because I had forgotten all about that. And my mom decided to make amends to me one time, and she mentioned that. And sometimes, you know, where they say, you know, accept what it would do harm to others. And I don't think she knew what she was doing when she made amends to me for that. But, man, I was resentful to her for a long while after that because I had forgotten about it. And when I remembered it, I remembered it well. It was like, you know, it's one of those things. You just sort of, these memories come back and you swear you're there. So anyway, that's, what, that's how it went. So when I became a teenager, violence entered our home. And I would like to tell you that that violence was solely on the part of the alcoholic, but it was not. It was a fighting place to be. And I would be a smart mouth, and my mother would, you know, she'd knock me one, you know. And heaven knows, I don't believe in beating children, but God knows I surely came close to deserving it with her. Um, and, and, but she didn't beat me, she just gave me a pop, you know. But with my dad, when he would come home drunk, the anger in me now was so great that I would confront him. And he was not a happy drunk. I heard somebody mention today they had a dad who was a happy drunk. I don't know many of those. Mine never was a happy drunk. He was a violent, mean drunk. And he started to turn his attention away from my mother and to me. And, of course, I didn't help it at all because I would, I would basically throw gasoline on the fire. I would get in his face, and I'd yell at him, and he'd yell at me, and I'd curse at him, and I'd spit in his face. And, you know, and all of a sudden, he would smack me. 
And a couple of times he knocked me down. I remember one time he had his boot on my throat. And the whole time I'm screaming at him like a girl possessed, you know. And I remember when I came into the doors of Al-Anon, they weren't as gentle and kind like she was saying something about tough love. They weren't gentle and kind when I came into Al-Anon. They were pretty tough. And so I was saying this one time in Al-Anon in the early days of my recovery. And an old timer said to me, well, Sherry, stop volunteering for the violence. And I was shocked. I wasn't volunteering. I was a precious victim. And she said to me, you know, the next time he comes home and he's violent, leave. What a concept. Who'd have thought of that? <laughs> you know, and I, and I always like to say this. It's those simple things they tell you in Al-Anon, those easy things to do that you look at and you go, oh, right, it's not going to work. You know, you, you discount so much that we say in Al-Anon. I discount things that we say in Al-Anon. It's not just you, it's me, because they sound so simple. And yet it's these very simple, easy things that work. And so I thought, well, I'll show her. This woman I particularly found annoying, so I was always going to show her. I got a lot of recovery from showing this woman. And, uh, so the next time my father came home drunk, um, he headed in, he weaved into the bathroom, and um, I picked up my purse and I left. And one of the things I was fondest of doing to him, that was the wrong term, one of the things I, was, I used to do to him was when we would get into one of these fights, I would take my nails, and I had really long nails at that time, and I would scratch him down the face. And so the next morning when one of these fights would have happened, I'd get up and I'd have black and blue marks from where he was grabbing me, and he would have these rake marks on, my, on his face of, of my anger. And um, it was just the shame and the misery at the breakfast table for days on end with my bruises and his scratches. It was just, the misery was horrible. So, you know, taking her advice, I take the pocketbook and I leave, and you know what happens, that simple leave? Well, the next morning, I have no bruises on my face, and he has no rake, scratch, rake marks on his face, and there's one less thing to be guilty about. So that one small suggestion that that wicked woman told me <laughs> worked unbelievably well. And it began to change the dynamic of the home. Just that simple act of leaving, which I never would have thought of because it was too easy. Well, I decided that I was so smart that I, what I was going to do to get out of this house was I was going to get you know, really great grades in high school because I figured that my brains could beat alcoholism. And so I was going to get good grades and I was going to go to a good college and get a degree and get a great job and be highly successful and that would, you know, I would never, ever, ever marry an alcoholic. And so that was my plan of attack and I began to implement it. And so I graduated high school with honors and I began to go to college. Now I didn't go away to school, I went to a very good local school. Um, in the first couple of years I didn't go away because I was afraid if I left that house they would kill each other. So I stayed at the house and when I was 20 years old, um, my father hit a school bus. And I, at the time, was dating a police officer, and it was on his shift. It was not a real good moment for him or me. And um, he hit the school bus, and fortunately, there was only four kids on the bus, and he, they didn't get hurt. Um, he sustained quite a number of injuries, but nothing life-threatening, so they could arrest him and throw him in jail. And um, that horrible act changed my life and my mother's life and eventually changed his. 
And what happened was all the police officers began to call me and tell me I needed to go get my dad. And I didn't want to do it because I was afraid of him. And I was embarrassed and humiliated. And finally, um, this guy, Andy, that I was dating, his captain called and said, you got to come get him, Sherry. And so I went down to get him because mom was working. And um, I brought him home. And his head was all bandaged up. I brought him home, and, and he went to bed. And um, it made the front page of the paper. And I, that was the first moment of letting go and accepting a situation because there was absolutely nothing I could do about that. It was on the front page of the paper. And that great big pink elephant, in our new book, I think they referred to it as a hippopotamus, that's even uglier, that was living in our living room was now like there. Everybody knew it. It moved from the living room to the front lawn. And so everyone knew what was happening in my house. And what was really surprising about and, and and I couldn't do anything about it. I couldn't cover it up. And I just remember letting go and thinking, let's see what happens now. Um, and what was interesting about that was I had a lot of friends, and they all loved my dad because he was charming and he was kind and he was he was helpful to all of my friends when they needed help. He was a terrific human being when he was not drinking, and they loved him. And they seemed to understand he had a problem. And those that didn't understand and didn't call or come around, I guess they just weren't our friends after all. So he, um, he was in a great deal of trouble legally, and it looked like he was going to be going to jail. So um, I had a cousin, and he had been through a treatment center. And he called my mom, and he said, you want me to come over and talk to Ed? And my mom said, yeah. So my cousin Greg came over, and he brought his wife. And Greg sat in the living room and talked to my dad. And his wife talked to my mom and me in the kitchen. And it was an old-fashioned 12-step call. And we don't do those very much anymore. And I, I'm a product of one of those. And um, I kind of miss the fact that we don't do that. I wonder, I wonder if we ever will again. Because it was a really great way for somebody to say, I know where you've been. And you're in your own home. And they're sitting there with a cup of coffee. And they're talking to you. You know, we don't do anything without a cup of coffee in this program. Even if it's the <laughs> decaf, which I think is kind of pointless. But um, <laughs> So my dad, for a number of reasons, one of them being one of a shorter jail sentence, he decided to go into this treatment program. And uh, it was one of the first places. That was in 1980, as I said. And that was one of the first places that treated alcoholism as a family disease. And so he was there for the usual, those days it was 28 days, and so he was there for 10 days before we could see or talk to him. And after those 10 days, we could go that Sunday to see him, and that was Easter Sunday. And um, I remember um, seeing him, and then they split my mom and me and him up, and I went in to see a counselor. And I remember this counselor sitting down from across from me and saying, do you feel crazy? And I was just amazed that this person knew that. Because, see, I thought, in, in my family, my grandfather was the oldest of four, and he was the only boy. He had three younger sisters. And all of them had died in an insane, insane asylum. And um, my cousins and I thought that that was just what women in the Fisher family did. They just went nuts. And it was kind of like a bad Gothic novel. You know, they lock you up in a tower and you die there. And so I began to think that maybe I had that little disease, you know, where I was going to go crazy and I was just doing it early. And it turns out I found out actually at my grandfather's funeral that none of my aunts died in insane asylums because they were insane. They were all alcoholic. 
And see, in those days, it was better to be crazy than be a drunk, especially if you were a woman. And I had had several years of the program at that time. And, and so we had all walked around all those years fearing this sort of genetic tendency of insanity. It's actually just a genetic tendency of alcoholism. So, you know, that was a... Nowadays, I can say, oh, what a relief. <laughs> There's help for that, so... Anyway, I said, yes, I do feel crazy. And she said, what if I told you we could help? And I was so sick at that point. I was 20 years old, and I was so sick and so scared. And I physically always had that feeling in my stomach where you didn't know whether you were going to throw up or you needed to just sit on the pot for a while, you know, kind of like I felt right before I spoke tonight. Um, and, and, and I felt that way all the time, this physical gnawing in my stomach. And so I did feel sick. And she said, well, we're going to help. And God bless these people. I mentioned treatment centers because they're out of fashion again. But for me, that place saved my life. And I was kind of an experiment. I was the first um, adult child. I was, I, I'm not fond of that term. I'm sorry. I'm really not. It's just where I come from. But I was the first child that they were, 20-year-old child, that they were treating. And I was the experiment. And I was so sick, I knew they were thrilled to have me. You know, I was like, well, we'll try with her. And hopefully, I knew that they were just thrilled to have me. And the wonderful thing about this, and, and, and the wonderful thing about this place was that when you went into the treatment, you were mixed in a group of alcoholics and non-alcoholics. So you had family members and alcoholics in the same groups. And that's when I first began to hear al alcoholics tell their story. And that's when I began to have what they call an Alan slip. I began to have compassion for the alcoholic. <laughs> Um, but it was, it was an eye-opening experience to listen to an alcoholic talk about the hell they were going through. And, and it changed everything. It changed everything in my life. Um, also that, that Easter Sunday, they said to me, the other thing you need to do is you're going to need to go to Al-Anon. And you're going to need to go to two meetings a week. And I thought, fine. So when I was done, my, I met up with my mom. And before we could have dinner with my dad, they sent us up. They had a weekly Al-Anon meeting every Sunday in this place. And so I went to my first alcohol, I mean, yeah, I wish I'd gone to my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. I could have fixed them quick. But no, I went to my first Al-Anon meeting, and I walked in there, and everybody was happy, smiling, joking, and laughing. And I thought, oh, man, my job is to tell these people and bring them down. They apparently don't know what it's like to live in an alcoholic home, you know. They just don't know. So I'm going to tell them how miserable I am, and I'm going to make them miserable with me. We're just all going to share the misery. And uh, there was a lot of older women in that room and a couple of men, but most of them were over the age of 40 and above. And I was 20, and I thought, oh, my God, a room full of menopausal women. <laughs> and you know what the joke is? I'm 48 now, and I watch these young girls come in, and they look at me like, oh, you are so old. <laughs> And I just want to say, no, I'm not. I was young once. So, you know, what goes around comes around, you know. But they just told me basically to sit down and be quiet and listen. Well, I've never sat down and, be, and, and was quiet for anybody, much less listen. And I, and I, I know I was one of those obnoxious ones that kept going, yeah, but. I, I, and they would just kind of cut me off. And there was a woman named Leslie there, and I think she ran the newcomers meeting for over 20 years, and there is a place in heaven for people like that. Because she basically sat, devoted an hour every Sunday to listening to newcomers come in and whine. You know, and she had other meetings she went to, thank God, I'm sure of that, but she never ever missed that meeting. And so I began to go to Al-Anon, and um, 
what was interesting was my mom and I came up with this deal where we, when we went to Al-Anon meetings together, she was Jean and I was Sherry, and we were not mother-daughter, and we never talked about, um, when we came out of the meeting, we never talked about what we heard or saw at that meeting. We basically treat each other in the meeting as friends, and we began, began to heal. And that was amazing. That was absolutely amazing because my mother and I were mortal enemies. And um, I began to see that my mother was every bit as sick as I was. And I remember doing my fourth step, and I, my first sponsor was a man because all the women wanted to mother me. If they, didn't, if they weren't mean to me, they wanted to be my mom. And um, so I picked a man because he was a retired sergeant in the Army just like my dad, and I thought, I know how to relate to people like him. And he was tough. He was tough on me. And uh, when I did my fourth and fifth step, he said to me, he said, you're going to need to forgive your mother before you make any progress in this program. And I said, no, I won't. I will not. And he said, well, and he was also in the group I was in at the treatment center. He said, well, you're not leaving this group because they would vote you out. That's how you got out. And it was everybody stayed about nine months. And when they thought you were kind of ready, they'd vote you out. And I couldn't wait for that day. And yet the day they voted me out, I was like, where do I go? But he said, until you forgive your mother, you'll never leave. And that was true because I had to see her as a human being just like me who had been badly, badly damaged by alcoholism. And so we began to grow together. And, you know, I began to see my mother with those pair of glasses. And I'm, she, everybody always liked my mom. And I thought, yeah, you need to live with her. You know, I now have a 12-year-old going to be 13 soon. And she's probably saying, oh, you need to live with my mom. And um, everybody likes my mom. My mom looks like, if you know Rose on the Golden Girl, that's my mom. And my, my current sponsor calls her Lovey because she looks like Mrs. Thurston Howe III. <laughs> and um, she's so sweet and such a genteel lady, and she can swear like a sailor. It is so funny because it comes out of this genteel face. But um, she's a great lady, and if Al-Anon did nothing else for me, it gave me my mom. And I am forever indebted to this program for that. So anyway, um, my dad left the treatment center, and, and we were going to meetings, and he was going to AA, and um, unfortunately, he didn't stay sober. But what, he began a series from, the time, from that time on where he would get sober for a little while, and then he'd go back out. and get, He was just one of those who just never, ever could quite get, keep the sobriety. But I remember the first time he, had, he got drunk after the treatment, and I went in, and they said to me, you can go down with him now, or you can stay, and you can continue to get better. What's it going to be? And I understood that. I was just got that much enough recovery to know that I could keep going without him, which I never knew before. You know, it was live or die together. So I continued to go to Al-Anon, and I graduated college with honors, of course. And because I'm going to, you know, beat the system, I'm going to beat alcoholism. And um, I always say that because I think people that have really high educations have a hell of a time in Al-Anon and AA. And I'll, because I always thought you were, I was smarter than anybody. And one of the things that anonymity in the program does for me is anonymity, I don't know what you do for a living. I don't know what you're educated. When I first come into a program, I haven't a clue what you do. And I was such a snob and a snot when I came into the program that if somebody had been a doctor or a lawyer, I would have listened to them. And I would have discounted the meter man, who, by the way, was my meter man and was one of the smartest people in the group. Because I thought, 
that if you were really smart, then, then you had an advantage over people. And I've come to know in the program that that can actually impede you because my, my, my first sponsor said to me, Sherry, when you go into a meeting, leave your brains outside the door. No one cares. <laughs> we want you to bring your heart in here and just, you don't need to think your way through this program because your thinking has already got you into trouble. And I've heard other people say, you see that sign, think? It's not for you. <laughs> That's not for you. We used to have a Harvard PhD in my home group, and, and his license plate said Harvard PhD. And God bless him, he never could get out. He just couldn't because he was always so busy trying to figure it out. And you can't figure it out. You just have to accept it and do it. It's one of those miracles. Matter of fact, if you figured it out, it would ruin it. I don't want to know. I just it would ruin it. So anyway, I'm, I, uh, I got a... I, uh, I got a good job in Virginia, and I moved away, and I was terrified, like I said, that those people were going to kill themselves, kill each other, and they didn't. And funny, they actually got along even better. <laughs> Mom painted my room real quick after I left. And, and, um, and even though my dad was drinking, like I said, she continued to go to Al-Anon, and it changed the dynamics because all of the crap we used to buy into, we no longer would. So he could no longer behave crappy because we just didn't deal with it. We would not deal with it. So it changed his drinking. I'm sure it really ruined it for him, but oh well. Um, and when I went to Virginia, um, when I went to Virginia, uh, one of the only good things I did in those first couple of years is I found an Al-Anon meeting. And I walked into the meeting, and they read the preamble like they read in every Al-Anon meeting everywhere, and I knew I was home. And I understand that's why we do things, this, that's why we read the steps, that's why we read the tradition, that's why we do that because we're doing it and while we're doing it, somebody in New Zealand's doing it, somebody in France, wherever there's an Al-Anon meeting, they're doing that. And so I walked in that meeting and I knew it was home. Now, I've done Al-Anon two ways, I've done it bad and I've done it good, and I've done it half-assed. And. Um, all within these 27 years. So, and they, some years are good and some years are bad. Well, when I went to Virginia, I began to do it. I've been in the program two years. <laughs> I'm an old timer now. And um, I began to do it bad. And I went to Virginia and I began to have a great time. And I tried very, very, very hard to join the other program. But my problem is, is once I start to feel it, I stop drinking. <laughs> and my husband and his sponsor says, supposed to feel it, Sherry. That's the point. Drink through that and you'll be... <laughs> and I never could quite drink through that because I'd have to give up control and God forbid, you know, I would do that. And so anyway, um, but I also did Al-Anon like you do a, a social club. I would go one, one meeting a week, Tuesday nights. I would go to Tuesday night meeting and I would go home. I did not get a sponsor. I was not working the steps. I didn't go to any other functions outside of that hour and a half meeting we had on Tuesday nights. I did not go to coffee afterwards. And I did nothing to get well. And I've heard a lot of people say, well, you just come in and sit down. And if you hang around long enough, you'll get it. And I, anything I said here is my opinion, but I vehemently disagree with that. This is a program of action. You have to take action against your thinking. You have to do something to get better. It's kind of like me praying to God and saying, I want a new car, and then I just sit there. 
God's answer is go to work. <laughs> Get a new car. Go to work. I'm not, you know, he does not give me cars. Same thing with recovery. God doesn't just give me recovery. Go to work. And every time I stop working on recovery, something bad happens. And uh, something bad happened. And that was, I was working at this place, and there was this gentleman, and he had big brown eyes, and he was really sad, and he needed somebody. <laughs> And I got to tell you, I've heard people say, I need you is the ultimate rush for an ally. <laughs> it's almost not quite better than sex. I mean, it's just, we hear, I need you, and it's oh, yes. I've been waiting for you all my life. And, um, we love to be needed. It makes us feel important. We can, I cannot, I can be, but it's hard for me to feel important unless you tell me I am. It's not enough for me to be Sherry, to be a child of God and be important. I always needed you to tell me that. And once I stopped caring about whether I was important to other people, then I could be me. So I'm trying real hard not to care whether you like me or not up here, but I'm, I'm not going to guarantee it because I like to be liked but, um, and needed. And so I decided that this man was going to be my project. And if I had known what I know now, I would have been running out the door. Um, but I wasn't, doing, I wasn't working a program. I was going to meetings. And we were sitting at the kitchen table one night, and the hospital nearby had a rehab program at that time, and they sent around things in the mail. And on the front, I had a picture of a hand chained to a glass. And he said, I feel just like that. <laughs> I should have run. But instead, what I said to myself, and it took me a long time to remember this, I said, I couldn't fix my father, but I can fix you. And um, it was a total descent into hell. Because this man was a very brutal, jealous alcoholic. And after about a year, I found him. We were living together at that point. I have no idea how that happened. I just don't. I mean, one morning I woke up and his socks were in the drawer. And somebody said that you're in a relationship when you have sex with them. I always say it's when you have socks with them because when their socks are in your drawer, you've made a commitment of some sort. <laughs> So there were socks in my drawer, and, and he was just a violent, vicious alcoholic. And you know, I, I had such huge pride that I almost died because of my pride. Because I couldn't tell anybody what was happening to me. I had a good job. I had a college degree. I was so smart. And, um, and, and this man was beating the crap out of me. And sometimes he would lock me in the bedroom, and I couldn't get out on the weekend. I mean, he would lock me in all day long. And what was I going to say to people? Plus, I mean, I couldn't go back to my meetings and say, I'm a bad Al-Anon, I've picked up another one. So my pride. And so it took a long time of me being with this gentleman, almost three years, um, until I could finally get away. And I laughed today when I heard Mark again. Um, what, what finally urged me to get away from this relationship was um, not the beatings, I wanted to go to a Bruce Springsteen concert, and I'm from New Jersey, and he said I couldn't go. <laughs> it's almost, almost sacrilegious. And, and so I thought, I'm going. And he was at that time working in Washington, D.C. in the week, and he would come back on the weekends. 
And so I called him that week and I said, you're not coming back here. This is my apartment, not yours. Your things are waiting for you. When you come back Friday, you come on by and you get your stuff and it's over. So I was real nervous about that. And he usually didn't get in there until about 9 or 10 o'clock at night. So that night I had something to eat and then I decided to take a hot bath to relax. Well, he came there. He got there early. And uh, he came screaming through that door and just nailed me to the wall. And just beat me to a bloody pulp. And um, I always say this because I think it's important. He, he also, because we'll let this happen to ourselves sometimes, he raped me several times. And then this bath that I had drawn was still there. And somehow he dragged me into the bathroom and he began to try to drown me. And so he, he would hold my head under the water and we were fighting. I was trying to get up, and, and he would pull me up, and I'd gasp for air, and he'd stick me back down again. And I remember thinking, what a dumb place to die. I'm going to die in a bathtub. And, and I, I truly think it was my higher power, because what I did was I sort of kind of went limp, and I guess it scared him. And um, he pulled me up, and he let me sit up that time. And so I'm soaking wet, and... Um, and I calmed him down and I said, let's talk about this. I'm going to go get us some iced tea because sweet tea in the South solves everything. And I went to get some tea. And I never put my pocketbook near the front door. But I did that night when I got home. And I had on a flannel shirt and nothing else. Fortunately, it was a long flannel shirt, but I had a flannel shirt on. And it was January 6th. And it was, it was cold out and it was raining. And I just, instead of going left into the kitchen, I went right out the door and got in the car and took off. And I called some friends and they came and got me and I had to, I had to tell people what was going on in my life, on in my life. And he stalked me for three months until I finally went and took out some warrants and I went to his parents and I said, I'm going to sign all these warrants. I've gotten a lawyer, I'm going to sign all these warrants unless you get him out of my life. And they sent him to Texas. They got a good program there. God bless him. So anyway, they sent him to Texas and I never saw him again. Um, and I'd like to tell you that that got me back into the program and that I worked my program really well and everything went hunky-dory. That's not what happened. What happened was I met this other guy <laughs> who, thank the Lord, was not an alcoholic, but his dad was. But he was a nice man. I mean, he really was. And for once, he, I needed him instead of somebody needing me. And he wanted to take care of me, but it was a big job, and he couldn't handle it. And so he went to Europe for two weeks, and he didn't come back for two years. <laughs> and um, when he left, I hit bottom. Now, why was that my bottom? Well, about two weeks before he left to go to Europe, I had lost my job. And um, they had closed my department, and I didn't have a job. And who, my education and my job and the guy I was with were who defined me. And so when he didn't come back, I didn't have a job, and I didn't have a man, and I had absolutely nothing. So my best friend came down to visit me, and we had a great time while she was there, and I thought I was covering up really well. And the day before she went to leave, she said, I'm not going to go home tomorrow. And I said, what are you talking about? Which is not defining me, but I knew she had a good job, so what was she talking about? And she said, well, I think that you're really depressed, and I'm afraid for you. And I just broke down because, see, what she didn't know, what no one knew at that time was that basically I was, um, I was getting up in the morning and I would smoke a half a pack of cigarettes and drink coffee and feed the cat and I'd go back to bed. 
And every now and then I'd crawl over to the supermarket to buy more cat food, more cigarettes, more coffee, and go back home and go back to bed. And that's what I was doing for over a month. And she somehow figured that out. And she said, I want you to call your doctor, and I want you to, um, to make an appointment to see him, and I'm not going until you do. So I did, and I went the day that she left, and, and um, she agreed to go. And she promised me, she said, I'll know if you don't go. I don't know how she would, but I knew she would. So I went, and I sat down at his doctor's office, and I had been going to him for a while, and I just bawled my eyes out. And, um, and he kept handing me tissues, and, and, I, and he was so cute. I hated looking that bad in front of him, and I was just bawling. And, and when it was all done, he said, you know, I think you're really depressed, and I think you have a lot of reasons to be and I'm going to give you something. And I said, well, I don't want to take it because my dad's an alcoholic and I don't want to become a drug addict and an alcoholic. And I tell you this because sometimes Al-Anon and the program just isn't enough. And so he did give me some medication that I took for a month. And I found out from, I was, as I said, I was telling him I didn't want to take it. And he said, oh, don't worry about it. We give this to kids so they won't wet the bed. And it's very mild. So I didn't wet the bed and I wasn't so depressed anymore. <laughs> But what he said to me after he wrote the prescription was, he said, didn't you say you were a member of Al-Anon? And I said, yes. And he said, well, how many meetings are you going to? And I said, I go to the Tuesday night meeting. And he said, aren't they free? <laughs> and I said, yes. And he said, well, if I were you, I'd be going to every meeting I possibly could, as many meetings as I possibly could. Well, there's another one of those simple things we tell people. What a concept. Oh, I could go more than Tuesday. They'll let me go more. Oh, so that's what I did. And a month later, when I went back to see him, I was doing pretty good. And they took me off to bedwetting medicine. I was doing much better. <laughs> and um, I began to go to a lot of meetings. Why? Because I had nothing else to do. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a guy. I used to have this cat that I get the cat food for. I used to call her God with fur on. And, and the reason was there were nights when I just didn't think I could get through the night and that little bowling ball, she was just round and little tiny legs, she was like a bowling ball with fur. And, I would, and she would cuddle in me and I swore to God she's the only thing that loved me. Now I know better than that now, but I truly believe my higher power sent, sent Kitty. And I've had many bowling balls with fur from God now, so, and I still have several. So anyway, um, I began to go to meetings a lot and um, I began, I started to attend an open AA meeting. They had a Sunday morning breakfast meeting and they wanted Al-Anon participation and I would go and I was like, I was always an experiment for people for some reason. I was the experimental Al-Anon there and since I didn't corrupt them, they let me stay. And It's a very popular meeting now. And I have mixed feelings about that because what has happened now is a lot of people that are in Al-Anon or think they are go to that meeting and no other Al-Anon meetings. Well, they're really going to an open AA meeting. They're not going to an Al-Anon meeting. That was an editorial comment. I will continue. Um, <laughs> so I started going to this meeting, and one day when there were several more Al-Anons coming, they said, you know, we're having a breakfast committee meeting, and we have a big breakfast on the peninsula, and, and um, we're having an organizational meeting. Why don't you come? Well, I wasn't doing anything, and I was certain that on Sundays people were home having roast beef and mashed potatoes and gravy, and I was all alone. So I thought, okay, I'll go, and so I went. And um, they had the meeting, and there was food there. There's always food there. And so I got to eat, and I had a good time. And, it was, and afterwards, they sort of had a mini meeting, and I thought, wow, this is pretty good. And so I started doing service. 
And um, I am a very, very passionate person about service now because service will double, at least double, the, spirit, the, the speed of your recovery because you have to deal with all those controlling Al-Anons. You, know? <laughs> you need a program to do service. So. And there was three people in, the, um, in that open AA meeting, and two of them were dual members, and one of them was just a straight AA guy. And um, we began to do things together, and they were a lot older than me. They were in their 40s and 50s, and I was about 28, I guess. And um, I began to have fun. I began to go places, and I was Sherry without a man. And that was so new for me. I mean, I'd always had a guy since I was 16, and, and I began to quite like that, you know? No socks in the drawer. I'm a good person now. So, and I really was. I liked being me, and I made a lot of recovery because I was working on me. And um, these three people had a friend named Doug. And they thought that Doug and I would make a good couple. Um, and so they fixed Doug and me up on a date. Boy, AAs need Al-Anon. And they fixed us up on a date. Well, what they forgot to tell me was Doug already had a girlfriend. And Doug forgot to tell me that too, by the way. And, um, and, and when I found out, because she was in AA too, when I found out, I thought, I did not wait two and a half years for this. So I let him go. Um, I let him go because I went to an AA convention and they were rooming in the room next to me. Good God, I guess I better let go, you know. <laughs> so I did, except, and I always tell this because, you know, I do like to hear you laugh and this is, I swear to you, true. That breakfast meeting had a buffet and that's, that's where we would go get our food and it had fruit on the buffet. And so I would um, go get my food and the fruit and he sat like across the room from me and I began to eat fruit in a very strange and provocative way. <laughs> I swear to you, I never ate bananas. <laughs> but I could do amazing things with strawberries. Yes. And there was a guy that sat across the room, and his name was Pete, and he later was in my, he was later in my wedding, and he passed away a couple years ago, and um, I miss him. He was a great big guy. And... Um, he came up to me one day and he said, I don't know if he notices, but you're about to kill me. You've got to stop that. <laughs> so um, anyway, I, I let go of Doug, sort of. And, and then about four or five months later, guess what? Doug didn't have a girlfriend, and Doug was at my front door. And I didn't know what to do. I was so scared because, you see, first of all, I had not had a serious relationship in almost three years. And second of all, this guy, Doug, people liked him. And Doug, if you meet my husband, he has integrity. And people respected him. And I knew I couldn't play the usual silly, crappy games I played with men with him, and that it would have to be a healthy relationship. And I just, that was scary. And so um, he began to pursue me as only a member of Alcoholics Anonymous can. Um, <laughs> And we started dating in December, and by January, he was talking about getting married. And I said to him, I'm not ready to do that, and I think you need to wait. And, you know, on my birthday's in June, and maybe if things continue to go well in June, we can start to talk about it. So we went to an AA assembly in March, and he proposed at an AA assembly. He didn't wait, for one thing. And second of all, at an AA assembly? 
I knew how my life was going to go. You know, we're going to do everything inside the program of Alan Ron and AA. That's what we're going to do. And I said yes. And the, the scary thing about that was that um, I have this problem, and I still do, and that is back to that bad things happen to bad people. I was so unused to good things happening to me, I was sure God would snatch it away. And so I began to make plans for this wedding knowing that it wasn't going to happen. And I had a lady who was, later became one of my bridesmaids, and every time I would say something, she was sweet, and she had a dear southern accent, and she was a cuddly, motherly kind of person. And every time I would say I wasn't getting married, she'd get so ugly with me. And she'd just say, yes, you are, just keep on going. And so I kept on going, and it was a big northern wedding. And my parents with the one shot, oh, they were thrilled. And my mother would call me, and she would make all these plans, and I'd have to, like, cancel her plans, like eight-piece orchestras and crap like that. It was just, <laughs> and my dad was so excited, and he loved Doug because they both loved sports, and they both were drunks. I mean, it was, they, they should have gotten married, you know? <laughs> and... Um, a few years before I met Doug, my father had had diverticulitis and he had had his colon rupture and he had almost died, not from the diverticulitis, but from the DTs. And um, he, he had been detoxed many times and he never got the DTs and, and I told them that and he did this time. And I have to tell you, if you don't think it's a disease, you need to see that. Because every um, organ in his body shut down with the exception of his heart. And he was in physically good shape, except for a little drinking problem. But um, if his heart hadn't been strong, he would have died. And uh, so I almost lost him. And I remember saying to him, uh, and they, they gave him a colostomy. It was temporary. And I, and I wanted so bad to tell my dad how much I enjoyed his sobriety. And my sponsor said to me, well, you can tell him once, but make it good, because anything more than that's controlling. So I went up there, and I saw him, and I... I waited for a good moment. We were in his garden. He loved had a really wonderful vegetable garden, and um, he had grapes, and he kept waiting for those grapes so he could make grape jelly, and it takes several years for that to happen, and he'd wait. So he was sitting there waiting for his grapes, and I went out, and, and I talked to him, and I said, Daddy, I really like it when you're sober, and you know where there's help. And he said, Baby, I know where AA is, and that's all I really could do. And, and um, when they reversed the colostomy, he went back to drinking. But... Thank you to Al-Anon and thank you to um, people in the program. I had a relationship with my father for 10 years from the moment I got into Al-Anon um, for those 10 years that I would not have had because see, I was so afraid of my dad dying because I was certain if my father died, I would die too. And I was so afraid of losing him and, I, and, and everything was always contingent upon his sobriety. And I just decided that I was just going to love him anyway. And I wrote him this long letter when I got to my ninth step, and I just made my amends to him and told him how wonderful he was. And anyway, so in the middle of all this wedding plans, um, we went up one, one uh, weekend, and my dad wasn't looking too good. And I said I was really worried about him, and I really wanted him to go to the doctor because he needed to walk me down the aisle. And he said he would go. I should have known something was really wrong because he never, <laughs> he never went. And, uh, he went and they had found a spot in his lung. My dad was an army sergeant. He smoked large quantities of camels without filters. I knew this wasn't good. And um, so he went in for the biopsy and um, I just didn't know how, I, could, I knew it was cancer and I didn't know how I was gonna watch my dad die. And um, my dad died the day of the biopsy. 
And um, I lost my very best friend, my hero. I never, ever stopped missing him. And um, I didn't know how it was going to go on. But I remember when I called my mom and she said, it's very bad, and she told me that he had died. I remember thinking the next thought I had was, I'm still breathing. I didn't think that would happen. Sometimes when I talk, I don't cry at all. Here we go, so bear with me for a second. Anyway, the wedding went on, and um, I remember when we went up for the funeral, it was in September, my wedding was in April. We went up for the funeral, I did not know how I was going to get down to that casket. It happened to be on my home group night, which is now on a Friday night, and I called some of my friends in the program, and I said, pray for me, and, and I went in at the exact moment that meeting was started, and I felt them carry me down. And I'm here to tell you that that power in the program is real. You know, when we stand around and we hold hands and we say those things that we say at every meeting, whether it's the serenity prayer or the declaration of the Lord's prayer, there is a power in that group gathering that you can feel. And that power has gotten me through so many things in my life. So anyway, the wedding went on. And... Um, I have to tell you now about my husband's sponsor because I always tell him, yes, Joe, I will tell him about you. And, um, and it's because he's, he's such an alcoholic. When I first met Joe, he, um, he had thinning hair, he had a bulbous purple nose, and he had ruddy cheeks, he had bad missing teeth, and he wore leisure suits in 1990. <laughs> And they would sit him in front of the door of AA and say, keep drinking and you'll look like that. <laughs> and he and my husband are devoted to one another because they call themselves connoisseurs of the grape. And that is that Joe, when Doug was, they've got about a year or two, he's, Joe's got about two or three years ahead of Doug. And, and um, when, when Doug came into the program, Doug mentioned one day that he was fond of Mad Dog 2020, and Joe's ears went bing, yeah. and they came across the room in slow motion, and they've been together ever since. And I said to Doug, oh, God, does Joe have to be our best man? And he said, yes, love me, love my sponsor. And I'm happy to tell you that Joe, and, and Linda knows me and she can attest to this, Joe um, has many, many years of recovery now, and um, his color has subsided, his nose is almost normal. Um, he met a lovely lady in Al-Anon, and they got married, and she threw out his leisure suits, and he looks real good now. <laughs> he looks so good, and, and I love Joe so much, because see, I don't have to worry about Doug's sobriety, that's Joe's job, not mine. And I love Joe so much, dear God, he's my daughter's godfather. This is the man I want to teach her spirituality. And, um, and, and he's amazing. And, and so we had this wonderful wedding, and it was, you know, Virginia meets New Jersey. And probably um, half of the wedding was in the program, and it was a wonderful, wonderful wedding. And it was a celebration because that day, alcoholism had been beaten for that one day because there was all these miracles in the room. Now, um, I'm here to tell you a little bit about my life now. Um, we were in, you know, I, 
we were married a couple of years, and I decided that um, it was time to, t- to have a, a trial child. <laughs> and, <clears throat> and I, to this day, have no idea what I would have done if it hadn't worked out, you know. But I was afraid to have children, because one of the things I didn't tell you um, was that I had, you know, well, I guess I sort of did tell you, I had this terrible temper. And until I had started working the program really well, I used to be really good at punching holes in walls and doors and, you know, it, it was not a pretty thing. And I didn't think I should have children because I would hurt a child. And so I just thought that was not something I should do. But you know what? I thought, you know, I've got a good husband and I've got all these people in a and I don't have to do this by myself, so maybe I can do this. And, um, you know, they would, I would go to Thanksgiving dinner and my one cousin would pray, Dear God, Sherry's getting old. She needs to try to have a baby. Well, I took off my shoes and I got pregnant. It was that simple. And I bought the test on the way to a meeting. Took the test after the meeting. Knowing it was not going to be positive. And holy guacamole, it was. And Doug looked up and he, and I, he says, What is what? And I'm crying. He says, Why are you so upset? I thought we wanted this. I said, well, having one and wanting one are two different things. <laughs> and he's so calm. I mean, just ate his cheeseburger. And I thought, well, he's not the one that's going to go through this, apparently. And, and thank God kids come whether you're afraid or not. Because Lindsay Staples came. And she came a full-blown personality from the moment she popped out. You know, she, she's just a miracle. And she has never had to live with active alcoholism. Um, and... I've never seen her father drunk, and um, she has been raised in AA and Al-Anon. And I tell you, that child absolutely is going to be at least on our side of the hall, and she's got bad genes, so the chances are she could be on the other side too. I'm aware that scares me to death, but it's not my, it's not, I can't see the future. But, excuse me, um, she loves alcoholics, and if they're bad, those that have the wild stories, oh man, they're her favorite. She would just, when she was just a little tiny tyke, she would crawl up on their laps and go, Hi, I'm Lindsay. <laughs> I remember I, when I had her, my room was full of AA. They all thought they were responsible. Yeah. They had gotten Doug sober, therefore they were part of this process. And the nurses would come in and say, Do you want me to get rid of some of them? I, they'll just keep coming back. Just. <laughs> So, you know, Lindsay Ray Staples, she's a, she's a miracle, and she, um, I, she's going to be 13, and, so, and, and my business partner says that she is um, she's the first example of human cloning, which she looks like me, she sounds like me, she has my temper, it is just scary stuff. My mom is just hysterically laughing at all of this. <laughs> um, but yet, and one day she said to me, Mama, what's an alcoholic? And I said, your dad. She said, okay. You know, she just doesn't know, thank God, but we'll see what happens. I just know, you know, and I debate, do I put her in Alateen or not? Well, here's the answer to that. When you live with a sober alcoholic, after a while you begin to forget they're an alcoholic. You know, you go to meetings and things are, you know, and all the isms are still there when you're an alcoholic, and all of my creepy, crawly things are still there, and it takes nothing at all for them to come back. And... um we had, and I thought we would get married, and, and friends in the program said we were like the prince and princess of Alanon. <laughs> Everybody thought, isn't that cute? And um, 
So I thought we would just basically every time we would just go to meetings and assemblies and when we had problems we'd read the big book and the ODAT and everything was going to be just great. And you know what? Sobriety doesn't make life perfect. It makes life real. And we have a real life with a real marriage. And Doug and I had this issue in our marriage that I hated. And I, it took, I always need a project, you know, and I took it on as my project. And I did everything short of turning myself inside out to change this. And it wouldn't change. And so finally I was beaten down enough about this that I went to my uh, sponsor. And I arrived on her doorstep and her husband opened the door and went, oh, good God. He said, get in here. She's a mess. And I sat down and I talked to her. And I never, after, after all the years I've been in the program, I didn't expect what she was about to say. And she said, congratulations, you've just taken on a new type of bottle. And I was fixing something that wasn't mine to fix. And every single trick and manipulation and crap that I did to work on alcoholism, I did to fix this problem. And it wasn't mine to fix. And so I had to let it go. And I had to accept that it wasn't mine to fix. And, um, and it's not gone, but it's a whole lot less there. And it's not my problem. And it's not mine to fix. So we, uh, we have a real marriage. And uh, we, we still go to meetings. He just picked up his 20-year chip. I'm so proud of him. I'm so very proud of him. I have nothing to do with it. I just have had the privilege of watching this man. And he still has integrity, and people still respect him. He is a good person, and he's a great dad. And Lindsay is a lucky child. She's a blessed child. I, only, I always like to end with my little, my little thing about service. I am, I'm a firm believer in service. I don't think you can get sober without service. I don't think you can get well in Al-Anon without service. It's, and and I, I love the, the story about making coffee because I cleaned ashtrays. That's what I did in Al-Anon. I would clean ashtrays back when we used to smoke like chimneys in meetings. And, um, and then I graduated to washing cups. I thought that was a big deal. And, and that, I didn't realize that was service, but it was. And, and I tell people, if you're not, and I'm not ready to do service, get in the car. <laughs> get in the car. Because I learned so much from doing in the program. I learned so much from working in the program. And I have met some of the world's most extraordinary human beings. And every time I meet one of you, I get to hear another miracle story. I thrive on those. See, I was always waiting for God to come up to me and go, morning, Sherry. It's God. <laughs> this is your burning bush. <laughs> and he never has done that. But those new pair of glasses... Um, I have a life full of miracles. I do. And if I feel bad, I just have to go into a meeting and listen, and I'm just astonished at how good our higher power is to us. And so I, be I became a GR, and that was fun. And then the delegate at that time, I was eight months pregnant, and he sat with me and he said, you know, you should think about running for DR. After all, my wife had two kids since I've been delegate. And that made sense to me, except... She had the kids. He didn't. <laughs> I failed to notice that until much later. And, um, but he convinced me to stand for DR. Now, that's crazy. I'm eight months pregnant, and I stood for DR. You know what's crazier? They voted me in as DR. That's crazy. And so <laughs> my, first, my first district meeting as a DR, I had, Lindsay was about six weeks old. She was just, she's, she laid in a little, you know, rockaroo, and we had the meeting. 
And, um, and I just loved it. I just loved it. And I loved going to assemblies. I just loved it. I wanted, and people say to me, oh, God, she's one of those service geeks. Yes, I am. And, um, and so when it came time after my term of dele- uh, dis- district rep was almost over, I decided to run for alternate delegate. And I thought, well, that's kind of like the internship, in case you ever thought about being a delegate. And um, the lady who was my sponsor was the delegate at the time, and she said, I think you should think about running for delegate. And I said, I can't do that. And, you know, for those six, it was about April or May, I guess it was our spring assembly. From that time until fall assembly, God put more delegates in both programs in my face. And everywhere I went, there was a delegate talking to me about, you really should think about standing for delegate. So I stood for delegate, expecting to not get it. After all, I had not done the internship. And um, son of a gun, they... Stop laughing. They, um, they, they elected me delegate. And what's really funny is this lady over here laughing, Linda. You know, she could probably tell my story. She's heard me enough. But she was, she was one of the area officers at the time. And when I went to my first World Service Conference, she was the taper there. So they wouldn't even let me go out of town to conference without somebody coming along to make sure I was behaving myself. I loved being delegate. It was the best job. It, and I was talking last night, and I said, you know, or this morning, and they said, well, it's a hard job. No, chairman was a hard job. Getting an area to behave themselves is a hard job. Delegate was, was just, I loved it. I met people from all over the world. And when I was delegate, we had our first international in Salt Lake City, and that was my first year's delegate. And I went, and that was unbelievable. And guys, the international is next year, and it's in Pittsburgh. And for God's sake, you can all drive there. And if you don't go, you do not know what you're missing. That was my public service announcement. <laughs> I'm going to call Rick and tell him. Um, WSO moved into my area. We thought, you know, it was like Valhalla. All the gods of Al-Anon were coming. And by God, <laughs> they showed up at meetings, and they're every bit as bizarre as every, every one of us. But I just loved being delegate. I did. I grew so much, and I got to see so many people. And I think, you know, I remember my last year, I thought, I will never see these people again, and I was so sad to say goodbye. And there was a lady from uh, Quebec, and um, I didn't think I'd see her again. And I had been asked to speak in Maine, and um, I went up to speak with my husband, and he was speaking too, and and I I met at registration, and Trudy walked in. And I thought I'd never see her again. Well, it turns out Quebec isn't too far from Maine, and she goes all the time. So I, I have friends all the time everywhere. I recognize somebody today in a workshop. I said, I know that man. And then I remember I spent one of the longest voting nights in the conference with that man sitting behind me. And I turned around and I said, you and I were together for that vote. Do you remember? And I, never, I mean, how delightful to know him. And so it's been a heck of a ride. And, and then I, I was public outreach chair, and then I became chairman. And we put in the Alateen safety guidelines. hi yi And that was tough. I mean, that was real hard work, but, you know, it it worked. The one thing I know for sure is the program of Al-Anon works. And the one thing I have faith in more than anything else in this world is that I trust the process. I trust the World Service Conference. I trust assemblies. I trust district meetings. I have seen it work. I tell you, it works. It is God as a higher power working through the group conscience. I've seen nothing like it no matter where I've gone. And I'm very, very active in my church. And um, I'm going to close with these two stories. I wanted to, uh, my, my grandparents owned a travel agency. 
and they used to travel the desert southwest, and they would bring me back things, and they would talk to me about it. And then my parents went, and they brought me back things, and they would talk to me about it. And then I got into this job where, oh, and the cop that I dated for a while, God bless him, um, he provided me, we had, he had a friend that was a state trooper, had a private in Native American gallery of jewelry, and he would buy me gorgeous jewelry. And so my interest got strengthened. And then in my job, I've worked with five, I do documentaries, and I've worked with five tribes. And so this church that I'm in decided to go on a mission. And I wasn't going to go because, you know, I'm not worthy. I'm never worthy of doing anything. Like, I'm, worthiness is a problem. I think I need another workshop on self-esteem. But um, <laughs> I went hoping they wouldn't find out I wasn't worthy. And um, while we were there, we drove 32 hours directly from Newport News to Albuquerque. That was crazy. And, um, and I, the lady in my car I'd never met. I just met her at the, 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 the meetings where we were talking about going. And turns out her father was in that Sunday morning meeting. And she had never gone to Al-Anon, but she knew about it. She found out I was in Al-Anon. We talked a lot about it. She's still not in Al-Anon, but she's still a very, very dear friend of mine. And um, we got there. And, of course, the number one problem on Native American reservations is alcoholism. And so she began to bring – a lot of the men were in prison or in jail. And she began to bring the wives to me. I don't know what – I guess she thought I was going to lay hands on them. I don't know. <laughs> but I always travel with literature. I always have my books with me, and they're usually stuffed with pamphlets. And I gave away all my literature with the exception of my ODAC because I've had that since 1980, and I just can't part with it. And um, I gave it all away. And, um, and I, I gave the World Service Office address to the minister's wife because they'll go to her. There's nowhere else to go. They'll go to the minister's wife. And I gave – and she – I told her to get some literature for them. And um, so the next year I'm going to Utah, and I'm going to a place that's even further out in the reservation. Nowhere is there anything for 65 miles, anywhere in the radius of this place. And so I called the World Service office, and I have a good friend there, and I said, Mary Lou, um, God, what do you think I should take? And she said, oh, you know, last week we just finished the printing and started distributing the new pamphlet, um, Al-Anon is for Native Americans and Aboriginal people. So I ordered like a case of that. And I called the people out there to find out where to send it, and they said, oh, it'll never get here because, like, the Pony Express barely makes it here. And um, we got there, and it got there two days after I got there. So I just gave it to the minister's wife, and she distributed it. And so, you know, God, the pattern of my life, that quilt of my life, is everything happens, and it just one is connected to the other, is connected to the other. A couple of years, well, after that trip, they decided it would be a really great idea if I led the trip because I have a problem saying no. I went to that workshop too. And um, so after a few years, we decided we wanted to, to, we were doing construction and we wanted to do a little more closely with the people. And we went, we're now going to the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana. So I spoke to the, the, the minister and his wife up there and, and I just fell in love with this woman instantaneously when I was talking to her on the phone. Just fell in love with her. And we would talk and talk and talk and talk. So we went out, last year was our first year, we flew out, and on Sunday they have sort of an orientation, and they would tell us, and they tell you about themselves. And so Jody and Sue Ellen sat down to talk, talk to us, and, and Sue Ellen starts with, she has this odd little voice, and she says, well, Jody and I met when we both stopped drinking, and we weren't supposed to get together, but we did in our first year of sobriety, and, and she proceeds to tell her story. And holy guacamole, she and he are members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And when it was over, after they were done, I walked up to her and I said, I know why I am so enchanted with you and why I fell so in love with you on the phone. 
And she said, why is that? And I said, because for 27 years, I've tried to stop loving people just like you. <laughs> Everywhere I go, God puts people in my life who convince me that he is very much here and very much in my life. And today, I got to share a lot. It was a God thing with Tim and Kristen. And I know that God has a plan for me in this program of Al-Anon. And I just have to keep coming back because when I don't, this 27-year member gets really sick again. And the other thing is, is that I need you, and my daughter will need you, and I can't fix her because I'm her mother. So I'm counting on you to fix her, and I'll help you with your kids. I like to close. Um, a friend of mine, it's non-conference approved literature, by the way, Tim. But I've always thought, that, I read this in Parade Magazine, and it's, and it's Mother Teresa's business card. So, I mean, how bad can it be? And, and her business card said this, the fruit of silence is prayer. The fruit of prayer is faith. The fruit of faith is love. The fruit of love is service. And the fruit of service is peace. Thank you. Thank you.